we're going to look at three types of mothers that our world needs. And that's, in a sense, the title of my sermon, Three Types of Mothers That Our World Needs. So let's go to Acts chapter 16. We'll begin in the New Testament, and then we'll make our way towards the Old. Acts chapter 16. Three types of mothers our world needs, and in a sense, we're really going to be looking at five different women and some of the lessons that we learn from each one in the Bible. So the first group is actually two women, and I'll get to that in a second. But if you're in Acts chapter 16, let's read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll go to other passages that will explain this one. Here's what it says. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. He was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now, just to explain a little bit of context in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we learn about the Apostle Paul, who goes on three missionary journeys. So in Acts chapter 13 and 14, just prior to this, Paul has gone through his first missionary journey. And then in Acts chapter 15, he begins his second missionary journey, preaching the gospel through all the provinces of Asia Minor, just proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And while on his second missionary journey, he hears about a fellow named Timothy. And all we learn about Timothy in the book of Acts is he has, as far as his background goes, he's, he has a mother. We don't know her name. We don't know much about her other than she's a Jew who's a believer, but he also has a father who is Greek. And this is all we know about Timothy's background until we read the letter that Paul sends to Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. So, so Paul will write a letter, and then we'll get some names, some explanation of who is this mother who's a Jew, who's a believer, and why is that significant. So I want you to turn with me, having this in mind, that Paul meets Timothy, a, a young man who's well spoken of by other believers, and then in 2 Timothy, so turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to learn a little bit more about this woman. So 2 Timothy is a little further along in the New Testament, chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 2 and on just so that you can understand. So obviously Paul is writing the letter to Timothy, and here's what verse 2 says. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember your constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So putting these two passages together, Acts chapter 16 in Timothy's family background, we learn he has a mother who's a Jew but a believer. Here, Paul gives us a name to that mother. It's Eunice, who happens to also have a mother whose name is Lois. Yet, all three of these generations are tied under one fact. 
which is all three of them, as the passage states for us, had sincere faith. In other words, although Timothy's mom is a Jew, she's also a Christian. She's a believer. Timothy grew up in a half-believing household, and I'll get to that in a second. She got her instructions from her mother, which is Lois. So you see the three generations. Lois has sincere faith. She's a Christian who instructs, we can assume, her daughter Eunice in the ways of the Lord, who also is a Christian, who instructs Timothy in the Lord, who also is a Christian. And this is the Timothy that Paul meets. Now, we know for sure, without a doubt, that these women indeed did instruct Timothy in the Lord because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, so just skip a page and read this with me. We'll pick it up from verse 14. It says, but as for you, again, Paul is talking here to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So now we know from background who are the people that Timothy learned this from, and we'll get clarity on what that is, but he learned it from his grandmother and his mother, two women, two mothers. This is who Timothy learned the gospel from. Now, it leaves no doubt that it's the gospel that he learned and not just the Jewish law, even though his mother was a Jew, because verse 15 clarifies this, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is a reference to the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in who? In Christ Jesus. It's not just that his mother was a Jew who taught Timothy the Torah as a Jew. No, the passage makes it clear. This mother who was a Jew was also a believer in Acts 16. This mother who was a Jew who was a believer had been instructed by his grandmother, or her mother, but Timothy's grandmother, Lois. And that instruction fell to Timothy who is now a believer who will be used in the New Testament. The point that I'm trying to make is that all of Timothy's formation came from Christian women. Now, contrary to popular belief, as we saw in Acts chapter 16, Timothy did not grow up in a single family home. He had a father who was Greek. The passage is making this clear in Acts chapter 16. Timothy grows up in a home in which his mother is Christian, but his father is a Greek. As reference to his father is not Christian. The husband is not a believer. So all the instructions that Timothy gets as far as who Jesus Christ is, what the Old Testament says about God, what the Gospels say about Jesus come from his grandmother and his mother. So the first type of woman or mother that we need is a mother that raises up her children in the Lord, that instructs her children in the Lord. Now, I want to hammer this in by means of application. While we know for sure that Timothy has a father, we can make two assumptions about Lois. It could be that Lois possibly raised Eunice, Timothy's mom, in a single family home, or it could be that 
her husband is nowhere mentioned in scriptures because he was most likely not a believer as well. But here's the point that I want to make to mothers, whether you're raising your children in a single family home or if you're raising children in a home in which your husband is not a believer. The lesson here is preach the gospel to your kids. Instruct your kids in the ways of the Lord and don't use the difficulties of this life as an excuse to not instruct them in the Lord. To put it another way, your children don't need another husband if you're in a single family home. Your children do not need another man to call father. They need you to get on your knees and to pray for your children. They need you to open the word with them. And trust me on this one as a child who grew up within a single family home in which I learned the gospel from mom and mom alone. I didn't need another man to call father while growing up in a single family home. I needed someone to instruct me in the love of God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ the Son on the cross for the redemption of my sin. I needed someone to teach me about the work of the Holy Spirit in the process of my sanctification because the only person who could fill that fatherless void was God himself. Not another man, not another husband. Instruct your kids in the ways of the Lord. Now, to the mothers who are in a family context in which you're the only Christian, in Acts chapter 16 we learn that although Eunice is a believer, she submits to her husband. As a Jew, in Jewish culture, all male boys are to be circumcised. Yet, in Acts chapter 16, we learn that in fact, it's Paul who circumcises Timothy, and obviously that's for evangelistic reasons, reasons I'm sorry, as they're going to go and preach the gospel to Jews, but I mention this for one reason. It's easy for mothers who are Christians to think, well, I don't have to submit to my husband. He's not a believer. He can't lead me and my family in the ways of the Lord. I don't have to submit to him. No, no yes, you do, because scripture teaches us that we do. That, that's the order of the family, equally created, equally in value, and yet different roles. And what we learn from Eunice is a mother who not only fears the Lord, but it's a mother who trusts in the Lord enough to submit to her husband, yet raise her child in the Lord, to the point where Timothy is a child of good reputation, not just in one city, but two, Lystra and Iconium. Again, I'm making reference here to Acts chapter 16, verse 2. To the mothers whose husbands are not Christians, my charge to you is don't nag to your husband about not coming to church. Don't nag to your children about your husband not coming to church. Love him. Show the love of Christ through you to him. Be a faithful wife who serves the Lord, but, but also serves your husband and, and works in unity with your husband. And here is my charge to children who might be here because it's Mother's Day. 
And you're just like, well, you know, once a year I come to church with mom because mom, you know, it's, it's her day, so let me come to church with her. Or if you're a husband who's not a believer and it's the same thing, well, I'm here because, you know, I don't want my wife to be upset on Mother's Day, so let me just join her. My charge to you is you do need the gospel. And you do need Jesus. And you need the work of Christ to transform your heart. But not just you. We all need men and women and youth and children in this room. We all need the gospel. We need to understand that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. And only the work of Christ on the cross can save us. And sometimes in our pride and in our arrogance, especially as men, we want to say, I can do it all on my own. And the, the reality is, can't. And so if you came here with a wife who is a believer, but you're not a believer, I want to let you know, husband, man, father, in some ways your wife is right. You do need Christ. Your family needs Christ. And they need to see a male figure in the household serving the Lord faithfully and helping your wife instruct your children in the Lord. So this is the first example that we get in Scripture. The first example I want to touch, the, the first type of woman that our world needs. We need women that instruct their children in the Lord, whether they're raising their kids on their own or whether they're raising their kids with a husband who is not a Christian. Open up your Bible, teach your children the Word of God, pray with your children and pray for your husband and love on your husband. This is what Lois and Eunice teach mothers in the room about the culture that we live in. So this is, again, the first type of woman our culture needs. One who teaches the word and instructs her kids in the Lord. Now, a second woman that I want to touch today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So we're going to jump all the way to the Old Testament. And the good news is I won't come back to the new. 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to read about another woman. Her name is Hannah. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 1, 1 through 11, and then I'll do my best to explain some of the things here in this, in this passage that or key to at least the topic for today. So here's what the passage says. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Sophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elehu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. Husbands do not get any ideas here. I don't have time to explain biblical culture, but this does not mean that we are allowed to have two husbands. So just want to get that out of the way, or two wives, to get that out of the way. And here's what the rest of verse 2 says. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and a sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. 
On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. I want to stop here. Hannah is a prototype of a mother who desires to be a mother, but can't. In other words, a mother who wants to have a child, but is having problems with pregnancy. Now, I want to say this now before we read the rest of the verse. Notice how her husband did not make her feel less like a woman. Notice how her husband does not make her feel less valued because she can't have children. The passage is clear. While he has two wives, he loves the one that can't bear children more. My exhortation to husbands who might be going through a similar situation, love your wife more in the midst of her lack of being able to have children. Use this example. Don't make her feel less. Trust in the Lord. Pray in the Lord. Uh, pray to the Lord. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Love your wife and make her feel valued even though she can't have kids. This is what we learn from Elkanah. I'll jump back in. Verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, we can't get out of this theological truth. Who closed her womb? The Lord. It was God's will to close her womb. It was God who had done the act. Does that make God unloving? The answer is no. Does that make God unjustful? The answer is no. Why God does what he does, we don't know. But that's why I'll keep rephrasing this. Our job isn't to question God's love, but to trust in his will. And lean not in our own understanding. As I'm quoting here Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. So the Lord had closed her womb, verse 7. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give, me your, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and all no, and no razor shall touch his head. I'm going to stop here in 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 11. For those of you familiar with the story, you know that God indeed does open up her womb, and she has a baby boy named Samuel. Now, again, I want to recap. Elkanah has two wives, Hannah, Penina, Hannah. Can I have children? Because the Lord has closed her womb, yet her husband loves her despite of it, encourages her despite of it, walks with her alongside of this process. But I want you to know that in the Bible, Hannah is not the first woman to be barren. In fact, in the Old Testament, this is a common theme, especially in the book of Genesis. So if you're taking notes, let me just walk you through many women who were barren in Scripture. 
I hope it encourages you. Not brings discouragement, but encourages you this morning. Here's the first one. It's Sarai or Sarah with, without the H and later with the H. And this is found in Genesis 11:30. She was barren for many years, but eventually she gave birth to Isaac, who continues in the Abrahamic covenant. Son Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rebecca, this is missed often, was barren for 20 years. So I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Genesis 25, verse 20. In Genesis 25, verse 20, the Bible tells us that Isaac is 40 years old. Do some math with me here. In chapter 25, verse 21 of Genesis, Isaac prays that Rebecca would have kids. Now, although the narrative goes quickly, what we learn in chapter 25, verse 26, is that Rebecca does have kids, but she has two twin boys when Isaac is 60 years old. That means that for 20 years, Isaac is praying for children, and yet he doesn't get any until he's 60. It gives me the understanding that Rebecca had problems getting pregnant for 20 years. And then finally, God gave her a son. Actually, two, Esau and Jacob. Following along under this same Abrahamic covenant line, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was also barren. But she finally is able to have kids in Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. And she gives birth to Isaac. I'm sorry, to Joseph. So you've got Sarah gives birth to Isaac, very important figure. You've got Rebecca who gives birth, I'll just use Jacob's name in this case because he's the important figure to follow on the genealogical line. And Rachel is barren and she gives birth to Joseph. In Judges 13.2, we learn of another barren woman who gives birth to Samson. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 7, New Testament, we learn of another barren woman, Elizabeth, who can't have children, and eventually she gives birth to John the Baptist. Theologically, there is something significant happening here, and there's actually two things. This is why the Bible presents many women having problems giving birth in Scripture. One of them is to teach us that their children will be important, and they're pointing us to Christ. All these children, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, even Samson and John the Baptist, who will be the first to proclaim about the coming Messiah, all point to Christ. So in Scripture, this is the first lesson, the theological meaning of women who are barren. Women who are barren give birth to really important children in the Bible. They point to Christ. The second theological meaning is if women who can't have children eventually give birth to important children that point to Christ, then what are we to expect of a woman who's a virgin and gives birth? You see how the narrative develops a biblical theology on women giving birth. The expectation is if is barren women give birth to important children who point to Christ, then of course a virgin woman will give birth to the Messiah. And we learned that in Christmas and Easter, so I won't get too much into that, but this is the theological framework. Now, I'm not saying this to give false hope. 
I'm not saying this so that you could walk out of here and be like, Henry has just prophesied that in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, I'm going to give birth to Isaac or to a Jacob or to a Deborah. That's not what I'm saying. The theological application for women who can't give birth in our day is the following. It might not be, well, I hope it's encouraging for sure, but it's the following. You need God. In all of these barren situations, it's God who opens the womb. The theological application for us isn't you're going to give birth to someone great and that's why God has closed your womb. No, the theological application is, mom, you need God. This is what Hannah shows us. Hannah, being loved by her husband, in the midst of this circumstance, Verse 10 of 1 Samuel chapter 1 tells us in the midst of her barrenness, Hannah prayed to God. Life was difficult for her. Yes, she was being teased by another woman who could have children. But one thing that Hannah did not lose faith in was God. Her trust in God was as strong as it had ever been. Hannah teaches mothers who desire to be mothers, young ladies who one day want to have children and get married. The lesson is clear even for husbands and teenagers who are here. We cannot do it on our own, and we all need God. If God does not intervene in our lives, we are hopeless. Apart from Christ, we cannot do anything. But Hannah also teaches us another thing. Hannah makes a vow to God that if God gives her a child, she would dedicate him to the Lord. And guess what? 1 Samuel 1, 21, she does. Now I want to challenge not just women in the room, but parents in the room about making vows. I want to challenge teenagers in the room about making vows. The question is, when we make vows to the Lord, do we keep them? You know how many parents I've heard throughout my Christian life say, I want my child to serve the Lord. I want my daughter to grow up and serve the Lord in in the church. And then, of course, they grow up and they want to join a ministry, and what do the parents say? I ain't taking you to church on a Tuesday night. You're crazy. I've been working for 12 hours, and you want me to go to church on a Tuesday night? I don't even go to church on Wednesday. I barely go on Sunday. You want me to take you on a Tuesday night? And yet when they were small, what did we say? I want my child to serve the Lord. God, if you give me this, God, if you pay for my school, I will serve you. And then God pays for your school, and you grow up, and what do you do? Everything but serve the Lord. To mothers who have prayed this prayer, will you keep your vow? To fathers who have prayed this prayer, will you keep your vow? If your daughter grows up and gets accepted to Harvard, but decides to not go to that school, but to go to Africa and serve his or her life in the mission field, maybe even to the point of death, Will you encourage that? Or will your speech be, how are you going to make a living? You can't make a living serving the Lord. 
What's the church going to pay you? What's the mission field going to pay you? What do you mean that you got a degree and you're not going to work at so-and-so prestigious law firm, but you're going to help people at a cheap rate? Do we keep our vows? See, Hannah doesn't just teach us to trust in God, but she teaches us that her trust is followed by actions. She's a mother who trusts in the Lord to the point of giving up her children to the Lord. And that is a lesson that we as parents, fathers included, need to really take seriously. Do we keep our vows? Do we really make sure that our children serve the Lord like we so often pray when they're small? And I know this because my children are small and I often pray, I just want them to serve you, Lord. But one day I'll be faced with this question, do I really just want them to serve the Lord? Hannah keeps her vow. Now, I'm going to use this illustration here. Because Hannah, again, is a woman who, in a sense, can't have children. And I want to free you up. If you're a woman who can't have children, you're not less of a woman because you can't have kids. You're not a non-mother because you can't have biological children. In our culture today and in this church, there are many young girls who need spiritual mothers. If you can't have children on your own, and I know how hard that is, in the process of praying and trusting in God, be a spiritual mother to the young ladies here in the church. Paul will say this later on in the New Testament, that the elder women, not elder as in their 60, 80 years old, but the older women should instruct the younger women. You ought to be a spiritual mother, mother who's trying to have a child. My message to you, and I hope by the grace of God, it frees you, you are a mother. You can be a mother. Even if you can't give birth physically to a child, you can be a mother to many youth, girls in this church, but also to many more in our culture that nobody wants. To many children in our foster care systems, in our adoptive systems, to many babies that daily get aborted, and I'll get to that in a second. To many babies that daily get dropped off at hospitals and police stations and fire stations because their own mothers and fathers don't want them. And my charge to you is, in the process of you trusting in the Lord to give you a child, be a mother to those kids. Look into foster care and adoption if the income is possible, and then pray and trust that God would give you a child. But let me illustrate this a little further. Uh, one of our professors at our school tells this story about a former colleague who's now retired. He was a professor at Trinity. We, he was already retired when we jumped in to school. He eventually had two daughters that he raised that were his biologically. But in all his life, he took care of about 30 foster kids. 30 children lived in his home, whether it be for weeks, months, or years, until they found parents to adopt them, until they found families to give them into. And during these years of raising children, in fact, they adopted, the couple adopted their last daughter who was a crack cocaine baby, a baby who was born already with very problems, uh, again, because of the 
cracking use of, of crack cocaine use of the mother. But in, in, in this process, there was a time when having already their two daughters, they had two other children with them that they were fostering in their home. And the agency, the foster care agency, called this family and said, we have two twin boys who are about three and a half years old that we'd like for you to adopt, to take in, or, or to foster for six weeks until we find a family to adopt them. The agency had let these parents know that they had been through eight foster care homes prior to trying to get into this one. Now, the family thought about it. They prayed about it. Financially, it was difficult. But eventually, as the agency kept insisting, they took in these boys. They agreed. All right, we'll take them in for six weeks. Now, these parents were, were not rookies at this. They've had foster cares before or foster children before. They had two currently living with them. But when these boys arrived, there was something different about them. They were extremely quiet for a three-year-old. They were extremely inactive. And so after family introductions, a dinner, the parents take these boys to sleep, to put them in their rooms, and they're just silent. Nothing is coming out of them. And, and this is the first time these parents, in all their experience, had experienced a case as this. And so they go up to the room and see what's going on. Why are these boys not doing anything? And they find these two twin boys in bed, in tears, shivering. Eventually, this foster care agency backtracked some of the homes that these boys had been in. They had been verbally, and in many cases, physically abused. So that night, in their head, they're thinking, here's another foster home in which I'm probably going to get beat tonight. Here's a, another family, in a sense, that doesn't want me. What was the difference with this family and all the others? They were Christians. This family feared the Lord. This family had a mother who wanted to be a mother to many more. Now, in our culture, some people would say this is why we should abort, because why put kids through this? But that's never the answer. The answer is, eventually we trust God that he would meet spiritual mothers, that these children would meet moms that want to take them in and love on them and help them grow and care. These kids did not spend six weeks with this family. They spent three years. When they arrived, they were diagnosed physically. They were, I'm sorry, uh, psychologically, they were tested. They were at high risk. They were very low emotionally. After three years, they were in schools. They had friends. They were psychologically tested again, and their emotions were stable. They were able to function. They were able to trust in other adults again. The point that I'm trying to make is eventually these kids or adopted, but we learned this even in Hannah's case. And my charge to mothers who struggle with having children is, in your process of trusting and waiting, there are many children that need to be loved and hugged and cared for and raised in a home that's Christian. There are many kids that need this. To end this sad story in a happy note, one of these kids became a teacher. I won't give their names and the other became an Olympian in his respected sport. This is what Hannah teaches us about the importance of motherhood. Trust God, but you can still be a mother. And I hope 
that mothers in the room that can't have kids would be freed from guilt and shame of not having them. Again, you're not less of a woman because you cannot have children. I cannot emphasize that enough. This is two categories, and I'll be quick on this one. We've, so far, Lois and Eunice teach us the type of woman that our world needs is one that instructs their children in the Lord. Hannah teaches us that the type of woman or mother our world needs is a mother who cares for others, is a mother who prays to God, and is a mother who keeps her vows to the Lord. The third one, and this will be the controversial one, but I have to mention it, given the culture we live in. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, as you look for it, is an interesting passage because we transition from Joseph and Abraham's family. And Exodus 1 lets us know that Joseph and his family had all passed away. So there's a transition in generation from Joseph to a new generation. And there's also a transition in the government of Egypt. For those of you who know your Bible, you'll remember that Joseph goes to Egypt and tells this prophecy, and Egypt does not suffer through seven years of famine. As a result, Joseph and Jacob and his, all his brothers are given land in Egypt, and they're blessed. But in Exodus 1, we also learn that there's been a transition of pharaohs. So one pharaoh knew Joseph, the next one doesn't, and as a result, they put the Israelites under slavery. Now in Exodus 1.15, these women are often missed in Scripture, but in fact, their theological significance is that in the book of Exodus, the first people to stand up to Pharaoh are not Moses and Aaron, as many think. It's actually these two women, Sifra and Puah. They are the first to say no to a government or a pharaoh, a monarchy in some ways, that is telling them to do something demanded by culture. So here is what the pharaoh wants them to do in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birch stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, just to go through this quickly, in this context, it's the Hebrew male boys who have been defined by a culture and a government as not being actual humans. So they're just Hebrew male boys that should be killed. The women are to be spared and any other male child, whether they be Egyptian or from another race, are to be spared. This is a culture battle. And I think all the mothers here know where I'm going with this. Our world needs mothers who fear the Lord, who trust in the Lord even on cultural issues and who look at abortion and say, I don't care how scientists define it. I don't care how a culture defines a fetus as not being a human. It is a human. It is a child because God says it is. Now you want proof of that? 
I'll give you a few texts. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 14. Again, Psalm 139, 13 through 14. Look at what David prays. You created me in my inmost being. This is God created him. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full. Well, what's the point of this passage? It's in the womb. When? Whenever you're in the womb. Six weeks, two weeks, one week, doesn't matter. When the womb begins to conceive life, whether the baby feels or doesn't feel, whether the baby has a psychological knowledge or no psychological knowledge, whether the baby can remember or not, Scripture tells us if it's in the womb, it's designed by God, it has a purpose, it has an origin, it's in the womb, it's by God. And David says, I praise you because it's in the womb, not out of it, that you knit me together. Life starts in the womb. Jeremiah 1.5, before you were born, this is what God tells Jeremiah, in your mother's womb, I knew you. Jeremiah receives his prophetic call, not outside the womb, not when he had cognitive memories, not when he had cognitive feelings, not when he could say mama or dada or when he could walk or when he could do one plus one or two plus two. It was in the womb that God gave him his prophetic call. This is counter to culture. But of course, Scripture has always been counter to culture. One more, Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, Redeemer to Isaiah, who formed you from the womb. Make no mistake about it. It is in the womb that life begins. And we can theologize scientifically, culturally, psychologically, but scripture is clear time and time and time again. Life begins in the womb. Every baby that goes through the womb is made in the image of God, regardless of how they come out. Now, there are cases where, given a mother's health, one must make difficult decisions. And that's about all I will say on the topic of abortion as a clause of excuse. If you have to decide between the mother and the child, there is a difficult circumstance and a decision needs to be made. But clearly in Scripture, abortion is not preached. It's not proclaimed. It's not heralded. In fact, the opposite is heralded. And here in Exodus chapter 1 verses 15 through 17, the midwives don't do it not because they fear culture. Who do they fear? They fear God. They had fear of the Lord. Now, I want to be clear on this. If you have committed an abortion, I don't say this so that you could relive the memory of such an event. I'm not saying this so that you could walk out of here feeling guilty and shameful. I'm saying this because you, as I know, should know, that Christ paid for that on the cross as well. And you can be freed, and your conscience can be freed. But in a culture that heralds abortion, I want to remind you that Scripture does not. And we need women like Shifra and Pua who would stand against culture and say, no, every child is created in the image of God even the one in the womb. And that's very important in our 
society today. Verse 20 says, so God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. You see that because they fear God, these midwives also were blessed by God. God had blessed them. But I make this point to be clear that scripturally, life begins at the womb. And make no mistake about it. To dehumanize humans is not something new. Hitler did it with the Jews. White Americans and Englishmen did it with African American slaves. The point that I'm making is once you redefine humanhood as not human, you may feel consciously okay to make some of these decisions. But scripture says all humans from all races, from all cultures, from all backgrounds of life, regardless of their past, present, or future, regardless of the sins that they've committed, all humans are created in the image of God. And in a culture led by women and often mothers who say those babies are not really human, we need mothers and women to stand up and say, no, yes, they are. Men can do it, but we need women, mothers who are brave, who will herald biblical womanhood as Sifra and Pua did. Five women, three types. Women who instruct the Lord or instruct their children in the Lord regardless of being single family or regardless of being in a household where the father is not Christian. A woman who trusts in the Lord through prayer and keeps her vow, and women who go against culture and fear the Lord. The message of Mother's Day, this Mother's Day, is mom, and not just mom, but father and teenager, fear the Lord and trust the Lord, for he is faithful. Why don't we stand up and let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your faithfulness. We thank you because you are a God who is beautiful, who is merciful, who is wonderful. And we thank you, Father, this morning for the mothers that you have given us, the mothers that are in this congregation, the mothers who fear you, who love you, who, who, who seek you. And I pray, Lord, that this morning, mothers would be encouraged and walk out of here looking and finding their trust in you and trusting in your word to lead them daily. Teach us as fathers and husbands and even as children and teenagers on how to serve you better and how to be better children and husbands and fathers to these beautiful mothers, Lord. We thank you for every mother here, for the call that you've placed on their life. And I pray that every mother here would walk out of here knowing that despite of whatever situation they're going to or going through, that you're a faithful God that walks with them daily. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we pray. And we all say amen. Why don't we give again the moms a round of applause. And you can join us back there as well. We have... We'd love to meet you and just conversate with you a little bit more. Thank you.